You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we jump into this week's interview, I just want to remind you again about our anthology, Recognize. It's a design anthology that features essays and commentary from indigenous people as well as people of color. Now, you can submit your own essay for Recognize. The theme that we have for this year is fresh. And the deadline for submissions is April the 30th. So a little bit less than a month from now by the time you're hearing this. Uh, For more details, including how to submit your essay, visit recognize.design. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Tim Allen. He's the VP of Design at Airbnb. And just as a note, we recorded this interview on March the 4th, 2020. This is before the widespread coronavirus outbreak here in the United States. So that's not mentioned in this interview. What I will do is put a link in the show notes to some news from Airbnb on how they are helping hosts, customers, as well as first responders. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, Maurice. I'm Tim Allen. VP of Design at Airbnb, and I look after design functions uh, globally across design, research, UX writing, and creative. Wow, that's a lot to look over. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite a bit. What's a regular day like for you at Airbnb? Does that exist? I don't know if it does exist in terms (laughs) of a regular day. It's a lot of context switching, I can tell you that. Sometimes I'll have a day where, you know, I try to avoid these, but, you know, it's just sort of back-to-back meetings with wildly different contexts for each meeting. But, you know, typically there's some combination of our creative culture, you know, how do we fuel that? How do we calibrate it? You know, what does quality look like, which leads into product? How are we impacting customers' lives through our through our product and maintaining quality? Again, that's a pretty constant theme. And then creatively, How are we creating resonance with our brand? So in some variation, sometimes all three, uh, sometimes just kind of focusing on one, like like people. I'll I'll have like one day where I'm focusing just, you know, mainly on, you know, one on ones and connecting with folks, making sure folks are being enabled to, to do the best work. How did you get started at Airbnb? I got started through a conversation, much like. You know, many other positions I've had. I had a conversation with 
Alex Schleifer, who is our chief design officer. And uh, we just hit it, hit it off immediately. Our sons are about the same age. So uh, he was actually on his way to pick up his son the first time we chatted. And, you know, we started talking about our design ethos and like what we believe in. And that pretty much rhymed. And you know, that was a great way to kind of start a relationship. So just had the conversation. And then before you knew it, you're working at Airbnb. <laughs> yeah. That's, pre- that's pretty it's good. Like Snopes effect. <laughs> What's the best thing about your job? Uh, I guess the best thing about my job, I think it's just being creative, just thinking orthogonally about business challenges, customer and community challenges, and then applying my own sense of intuition and, and background to those challenges is, is, is pretty exciting. Tell me more about the the team. You mentioned you kind of are doing a lot of context switching. Talk about the teams that you that you oversee. Yeah, uh, you you have experience design, which is you know a pretty broad function. Uh, you know, the, we have generalists here, so good range of folks that you know either index on visual design or interaction design or some you know mostly a combination thereof, but with varying levels of capability on a, sort of either side of that. You have research and insights, sort of survey science, data science, and UX writing, information architecture. There's quite a bit of variance there. It's interesting that there's all those positions at a company that is, I don't know, would you call Airbnb a tech company since it mostly sort of deals, I would say, with, I don't want to call it hospitality, but with lodging in a way? Yeah, yeah. Accommodations is one big part of our brand. You know, we've recently expanded into just Airbnb experiences where, you know, you don't have to own a home to or, you know, have a home in order to share your own or to be a host, basically. Talk to me more about that. Yeah. It's so Airbnb experiences is all about the sort of best in class experiences. So when you arrive at a location, you can feel like you're at home. And you feel like a local as opposed to feeling like a a tourist. Like we have different categories such as, you know, animals just launched recently to a lot of uh, fanfare. We have uh, we have a couple categories that are uh, getting ready to launch uh, soon as well. Cooking is another category that's uh, very popular. We also have adapted experiences, too. So just in terms of inclusivity and accessibility, a lot of times people with uh, mobility impairments or people that are disabled have a tough time when they're traveling being integrated into experiences. And so we have a whole host of adaptive experiences that are specifically catered towards disabled and the accommodations that are required. Hmm. So it's it's not even so much, it almost sounds like a built-in kind of a, almost like a package in a way. Like, of course, with Airbnb, you're renting out someone else's space, but it sounds like with this, it also kind of lumps in different activities you could do, like maybe going out to eat or, I don't know, seeing a play or something like that. Is that kind of a good way of describing it? Yeah. I mean, mostly my job is about innovating around the entire consumer journey across digital and offline experiences from the moment you think you want to go somewhere, sort of as an inception moment through planning, through booking, 
obviously through hosting is a big experience in terms of your accommodation and the experiences you have while you're traveling. And so it's like, how do you create the best trip possible and, and make it as magical as possible? Hmm. I never thought about it, I guess, in an end-to-end sort of way like that. It's not just that you're providing lodging. You're also providing entertainment. You're providing tur- – it's almost tourism, I guess, in a way. Yeah, yeah. A, lot, a big part of our um, brand is 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 around uh, tourism. We have a you know ecotourism sort of category of experiences as well. So, yeah, it, that's a good way to think about it. Nice. Let's see. So, one thing that I've I've heard a lot about with Airbnb, we actually have had someone from Airbnb on the show. This was years ago. I don't even know if he still works there anymore. But uh, he talked a lot. His name is uh, Areem Anthony. I think he was in the production design department, but he talked a lot about Airbnb and its very open culture. Um, is that something that you've experienced since you've been there? Yes. I mean, one of the biggest things that drew me to Airbnb was like my perception I'm from the outside of the community. And then now that I'm a part of Airbnb, it's, it's definitely rung true. Um, that open theme is definitely there. I think it's because of like the company mission just resonates so deeply with so many people. It's usually the number one reason people join or want to be a part of the company. Um, and, you know, company missions can be, um, you know, fluff sometimes. Right. Um, uh, but I think the the actual intent of delivering on the mission of you know, creating a world where anyone can belong anywhere. Um, so intentionally going after that and then also having the means to deliver against that. Um, I think those two factors create this culture that um, it's sort of like a baseline understanding um, that people have this, the shared purpose that allows people to be open in a, in a different way. Mm. I know that's something that, you know, in really, I think in a lot of big tech companies, having an open culture is something that's really important because diversity and inclusion is important. They want to make sure that people can bring, you know, the notion of bringing your whole self to work. Uh, is that something I would imagine in your position being a, a VP? That's that's a really big deal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about belonging, the way I think about belonging, um, is almost uh, synonymous with creativity. I, I think when you overlay the factors that uh, add up to belonging um, with the factors that enable creativity, um, it, they're very similar. You mm-hmm. know, it's a, a sense of safety um, uh, with the, uh, the fearlessness of you know not creating errors and. Um, uh, the openness of communication, feeling like you can contribute, all of these things that when you when you feel like you belong, uh, it's very it's very much um, uh, a way of cultivating uh, creativity too, which is basically my job. Mm. How do you help to enable that throughout your teams that you oversee? Um, I, well, one thing I start with is just like just foundational representation. Mm-hmm. You know, I think homogenous teams uh, usually make uh, homogenous products based on homogenous strategy- strategies. And um, that's definitely not what we're, we're aiming to do. Um, again, like we want 
you know, anyone to belong anywhere. So when you say anyone, you know, how can your team stretch as much as possible across the breadth of human diversity, you know, in terms of gender, race, um, or gender identity, um, orientation, um, background, uh, ability, disability, and, and so forth. We've got a, a, a good range of folks. Um, so, you know, you start to get that diverse perspective built in. Um, we, have, we don't have it solved. I, I think we have a, still have a ways to go, as, you know, many organizations do. But, you know, that is definitely our intent uh, at, at a foundation. Yeah. So let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. Of course, people know you from not just your work that you've done uh, while you've been at Airbnb, but also a lot of your other design leadership positions, which we'll get into later. But let's let's take it all the way back. Tell me about where you grew up. Yeah. So my father was in the military, so uh, we moved quite a bit. Um, I actually spent a lot of time growing up in Japan, uh, several years in Okinawa and several years in Iwakuni. Um, and then we moved uh, to, you know, uh, California, South Carolina, D.C., um, Northern Virginia area, and ended up going to high school and settling in um, North Carolina. Hmm. Um, and, yeah, I went from high school to college and, you know, design school in North Carolina as well. Yeah, I saw as I was kind of doing my research, you got your undergrad and you got your graduate degree from NCSU, which we've featured on the site before. We've talked a lot about how great the program is. We've had a few NCSU alums on the show, too. What What was it like there for you? Like, paint a picture. Like, what time period is this when you're at NCSU? Oh, man. So this was uh, a while back uh, at NCSU. It was called the School of Design rather than the College of Design. Um, it was... I, I want to say it was one of the top 10 design schools or so. So like coming into it I, for me was a very big deal. I was um, like so excited to get in when I first got there. I felt I did feel like a fish out of water, though. I was like, am, am I like is, these are real designers around me? You know, I just like, um, you know, my background is airbrushing. So uh, I had my little airbrush. Uh, compressor and airbrush, like all ready to like do some design work. And, and wait, wait, like, hold up, hold up, back up. Airbrushing, <laughs> like, like how people airbrush T-shirts or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's actually so. How I got into, I guess, design or I would say art back then. Okay, was in high school. Yeah, I had my own uh, airbrush company. Oh, I doing, yeah, T-shirts in like sophomore year in high school. Uh, my dad got me. Uh, all right. Uh, airbrush set as a as a gift because I was like I just drew all the time I was a big drawer and I just drew drew cartoons and stuff all the time and then he was like you should try this and before he knew it like I was making t-shirts for like the basketball team and football team and like all my friends and then that blew into blew up into like um, cars and boats and then I started doing um, like businesses in the area and stuff and uh -huh. by the time I was a senior I had just like a whole portfolio of business um, which I used that as a portfolio, which I didn't even know what a portfolio was to mm -hmm. get into design school. So you were airbrushing T-shirts in the South. I, I'm imagining this is probably like like mid-90s probably. 
Yeah, you, you're talking you, about mid '90s. Yeah, you were cleaning up because I, <laughs> I you were cleaning up because airbrush t-shirts were pretty big back then. Huge, man. I had a pretty good, pretty nice business, man. Okay, <laughs> as, as a little high school student, um, no, nah, it was it was good. I, I just loved doing. I do. I just stay up. Um, literally, I'd start like I don't know after dinner ish. Um, and just airbrush all the different, like, I guess, clients I had until 2 a.m. or so, get some sleep and then go to school and hand out all the, the merch. Nice. So it sounds like your parents were pretty supportive of you kind of using your talent in this way. Yeah. I mean, even just introducing the airbrush and, you know, it's just like really, really supportive of art in general. I, I know that's not always the case, um, but yeah, um, yeah, that, that that definitely was the case with, with my family. Did they introduce you to like art and design at an early age or was this something you just picked up? Well, it's interesting because both my well, my mother used to um, teach art mm. um, and then my father was just like uh, just a doodler. And I just would see him doodle and it was he's actually a really good artist. Uh, and then he, he taught me how to draw when I was super young and then I just, you know, kept doing it. Wow. And then that of course inspired you to end up going to North Carolina state. So tell me about the program. Do you feel like it really helped you once you sort of got out there in the world as a working designer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say there was like a, a couple of very fortuitous events that happened and some mentors that sprinkled in there that just fueled the the passion I already had on around art into sort of design and like um not only like helping me understand what design is but also like how it relates to art you know the I think I was very fortunate to uh be in a curriculum that was labeled art and design. So it's this, there's this intermix of like um, subjective emotion and then objective problem solving and, 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 and how those things relate um, still to this day is like kind of foundational in the way I approach design. Um, but yeah, I was, um, you know, the opportunities I had really were straight coming in um one of the professors saw my airbrushing and, you know, airbrushing is very volumetric. Um, yeah. And that was like one of the things that drew me to it. It's so easy to shade and so forth. And so he's like, you know what, you know, th- 3d um, design and like CGI is probably something you would, you would gravitate towards because you just have this natural instinct towards like, um, like objects. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, cool. And so it eventually, like, you know, that relationship blossomed and he and he, he got a grant from NSF um, to create um, character animation and pedagogy for um, like what, what they used to call multimedia back in the day. So it was basically like CD-ROMs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so he, he just paid me for a summer oh. to learn CGI. It was like these uh, silicon graphics machines that were down in a basement and no one knew how to use them. They were like built on Unix. And he was like, crack the code on these and learn how to like create uh, 3D uh, avatars and animate them. And, you know, there you go. 
And so I, I literally, again, like with the, it was sort of deja vu with the airbrush. It's the same thing I did was, you know, for the next three months, I just like hauled away in, the, in that basement learning 3D. Uh, and then, yeah, this started, that, that was my path of like, how does art relate to design? Mm. Self-taught. Yeah. So once you graduated from North Carolina State, what was the, what was the first design job that you had? First design job was at uh, this game company called Interactive Magic. Okay. And they made this, they were known for this um, flight simulation game called uh, Apache. And it was just, you know, Apaches are these huge um, helicopters uh, in the military. I think it's like, I don't know one of the like most feared or like destructive uh, helicopters in the, in the arsenal or whatever. But so we, we played that up in the game and basically you, you, you got the experience of um, flying uh, an Apache helicopter. Um, but we also did first person shooters and, you know, a couple other things as well. Hmm. And now as I was looking through your, you know, your extensive LinkedIn resume, I saw that you were a product design lead at IBM for five years. And this was like back during a time when product design certainly wasn't as widespread as it is now in the industry. I'm curious to know, what did you take away from that experience? Oh man, it's a, that was foundational as well. I, I was fortunate enough to have Chris Paul as a manager um, coming out of that interactive magic. Um, he recruited me into the team and like I, within a year, I was already managing um, folks, um, just because he, you know, he just believed in my capability. Um, so, you know, not only was I learning product design at a like very early time, but then also like learning how to manage people and, and so forth early in my career. Um, yeah, it was a it was it was a pretty cool time. I was working on WebSphere. Um, which is sort of like a uh, enterprise uh, web development uh, IDE, um, yeah, and, and you know a couple other uh, projects there. One thing that I saw recently, I was reading through. Um, I think it was Fast Company. I was reading through, <clears throat> and uh, they were talking about this study. I don't know. You probably might have read this. The study from McKinsey about CEOs and design leadership. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so you, you probably know where I'm going with this. So, uh, you've held down a lot of design leadership positions at a number of different companies and agencies. I mean, we've mentioned IBM. Of course, you're now at Airbnb, but I mean, Adobe, Amazon, Microsoft, RGA, like that's a huge swath of, of experience there. Um, and, and to sort of refer back to the study, the study basically was saying that, uh, CEOs don't understand design leadership at all. When you look back at your career, have you found that to be the case? <laughs> I think there's been a progression. Um, I wouldn't say we're, we've reached the nirvana yet, uh, <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> but there has been a progression, I think. And um, I could describe my early career as trying to get a seat at the table as a designer um, and then, you know, as a team lead, trying to get your team to have a seat at the table, your voice, your, the voice of your team, um, 
at the seat of the table. And then, you know, human-centered design and uh, design thinking, get, you know, being the voice of the customer and having the customer customer uh, have a seat at the table, table being like, you know, executive forums, decision-making forums, and so forth. And then I think now, if you're fortunate enough to be in a successful company, most likely they know some, there's some notion of design as a strategic asset in there. I think the extent to which that's true probably varies. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it, we, we've grown. At the same time, I think designers as leaders are very rare. And I think at the, the point of my career that I'm in now, what spoke to me quite a bit you know, getting back to Airbnb a bit is the, you know, the fact that the founder, you know, two of the three founders are, you know, RISD grads and, uh, Brian and I have a good rapport. Brian Chesky, um, is like, you know, a designer's designer, <laughs> if anything, and he, he, he leads the whole company as, as CEO and that, um, the way to approach problems that we learned at, you know, very early on as designers is just, uh, thematic in how Airbnb just runs in general. And I find that fascinating. So you just, you just dropped a little something there. I want to go back to, you said that designers as leaders are rare. Can you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think we get to a certain designers as business leaders. Okay. Are rare. Yeah. I think when we, um, there are very few, um, CEOs with design backgrounds. Um, typically, even at the executive levels, design reports into engineering. Um, you know, typically there's very little design organizations that um, end at CEO level or report into sort of a, a C-level um, position. Again, like and that's just representation that sort of quote unquote seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just find that interesting. I think that at a certain level, we plateau a bit. Hmm. What do you think would need to happen to change that? Um, you know, I think that design, approaching design with a business lens, uh, without sacrificing the ability to be creative is um, is one way to do that. Um, I think there's a balance to be had there, but understanding and even building this into design curriculums at, at an early um, phase in people's um, development is kind of key. Like how, how did decisions get made um, in business um, and how can design play a part not only in what's delivered, but how it's delivered, why and and why it's delivered, in in uh, in, in relation to the the business and and the and the reason why the company even exists. Hmm. Given your design leadership positions, have you found that designers are starting to come more into that business sense as the years go on? Like, are they are oh, they improving? Yeah. I guess is that's probably a better way to put it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, the design has just, it's been democratized by technology a lot more. So 
I think when we bring folks in with varied backgrounds, um, so folks just out of undergrad while they were going to school or, or even not sort of attending undergrad that have had their own brand agencies or have been contracting and, and understand business at a level of basically putting food on the table, I think it enables them to have the same, a different level of rigor in terms of how they impact decisions at work as, you know, ICs or, you know, even managers. Okay. I'm curious with that because I feel like certainly as technology has made it so more and more people can enter into design at pretty much any level, in a way it sort of forced some people to be almost more entrepreneurial or more business-like in their design because they may not necessarily be doing it for, you know, a business, but they have X number of clients, say, if they do a bunch of design for like a marketplace website or something like that, like a, I don't know, I'm thinking like 99 designs or something to that effect, where they then have to kind of talk to a number of different clients and like weigh the business cases and not just create for the sake of creation, I guess. Yeah. Even just bringing it back to my own story of having an airbrush business and understanding like, you know, clients and briefs and, you know, however, you know, crazy they were even in high school or it's sort of like, hey, you know, just hook me up with a T-shirt with like the Wu-Tang Clan symbol on or whatever. But like you still need to understand like, OK, what is this person's sensibility and like, you know, what are you trying to do? What's, it's basically what this person's brand is that enables a different level of a different way of seeing the world when you hit the corporate or, or agency roadmap. Yeah. So you've been now at Airbnb. We spoke about this before recording. You've been there for about seven or so months now. What lessons did you learn this past year? Like, how has this new experience improved you or, or has it helped? How has it helped you grow? It's been, for me, just refreshing to be in a company where creativity and design is an extreme asset. I mean, it's. I think I probably took that for granted earlier in my career working with Nike at, at RGA and just being in sort of an agency for so long of like your purpose or what you believe in intersecting or overlapping with your talent or kind of capability as a designer. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't understand like how rare that was until after I left RGA and and. and wasn't working on Nike. And I think now, you know, I've worked with a lot of companies that have great missions, but being back, being at Airbnb, it reminds me of, you know, earlier in my career where it's just like I, a lot of people believing in something, a lot of people with extreme amounts of talent. And I think that that belief mixed with the level of creativity and talent that's cultivated here is just, is one of the things that's just, it's really refreshing. And yeah, just, it's, it's a delight to be here. Nice. When you look back over your career at all the places you've worked at, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? The biggest lessons I've learned, I think, is that in some ways, I think creativity in terms of design is an act of kindness. What draws me to design the most is when that's quantified and and calibrated against. What I'm saying is I think that creativity by itself isn't in service of something, uh, creating a better world or impacting people's lives in a positive way, can start to feel a little self-indulgent, 
But I think a mission like empowering every person on the planet to achieve more, when you mix that with creativity, there's, there's kindness involved in that. I think a mission like, you know, any, anyone feeling like they belong anywhere, there's a notion of kindness in that. And design in the right circumstances can impact people's lives if people are committed to it. What does success look like for you now? For me, it is just authentically committing to a purpose and kind of propagating that commitment among team members. So attracting people to that mission, fueling that mission, and then delivering on that mission, which is, you know, basically our our products and and our innovation. So I think success is all about like the understanding that purpose and just being a catalyst for for belonging at, at this point. Now, I know you just started at Airbnb not too long ago, but I'm curious, are you happy kind of with your current work-life balance? Is it good? The work-life balance is interesting because I don't know, I don't know if I'd create a binary between the two. Well, I don't know if I'd necessarily say it's a binary. I guess think of it more like like a seesaw. Like the yeah. balance is where you feel it's the most balanced. So it's not necessarily taking one from the other. And I'm curious, if it's not balanced, what would that look like for you? So I, I have a two-year-old now, which is a new thing that's very inspiring as well, and a five-month-old. Oh, congratulations. So thanks a lot. So I think I'm happier in my career just just in terms of like where I, where I am and the people I'm working with. I think so that makes me a better spouse, better father, and so forth. I think in doing that, the balance is, I think when you're passionate about something, you're compelled to do it quite a bit and go above and beyond. So it's like, how do you calibrate against responsibilities as you know a new father while still stimulating yourself and improving yourself? And you know, just along that, is just being on a journey of improvement as a person. And then, like, you know, how does your career fit into that as well? That's that being a new father, that those are some new variables that I hadn't had to deal with before. So what keeps you motivated and inspired these days? I mean, aside from your kids, I would imagine. Yeah, kids, definitely. I, that, I would say that's probably number one. I mean, without being, you know, cliched, it, you see that everything is new in their eyes. You see everything that comes in, comes out in some way. You see a reflection of yourself, both the best parts of yourself and sometimes the worst parts. Uh, so that's definitely a, an area of inspiration. I, you know, I read sci-fi, I'm a sci-fi fanatic. I love Octavia Butler, so I read her stuff a lot. Yeah, it's, I think mainly, yeah, it's some, a combination of like fashion, sci-fi, and just like being enamored with my kids is probably the biggest inspiration for me. I mean, I heard you were quite the sneakerhead too. Somebody I told me that. It. I mean, you can let me know if I'm wrong there, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I have a big, a large collection of shoes uh, from my days working with Nike. And I feel like I'm a reformed sneakerhead a bit. Is that possible? I still probably have way. I don't know, but I, I, I'm not, <laughs> I don't have as many as before, you know. <laughs> and so, like, I have just like a, a few, a smaller inventory than I did before. But, I, you know, I, I try to make them count. You got like a nice warehouse set aside for them. <laughs> yeah. Climate yeah, control. 
do you feel like you're living your life's purpose right now or do you think you're still like searching for it oh wow that's deep maurice yeah at times i do feel like that's the case i love what i'm doing right now in terms of purpose I love how it's being directed and and, and delivered. I love the impact I have on people's lives or the impact I want to have on people's lives. And yeah, it's, it's cool to be a new father. And so there's like a lot of things that are in line right now. So yeah, I I hadn't really thought about it like that, but yeah, I, I, I say I'm starting to live my purpose. Is there anything that you haven't done yet that you want to do? This can be career wise. It can be life wise. Anything in particular? I'd want to learn how to fly, fly planes. Oh. Yeah. I, for my, one of my recent birthdays, my wife got me flying lessons and it was pretty amazing. So I just, you know, started, but I haven't been able to keep it going. But yeah, one, I'd, I'd love to just like be a, like a, I guess a novice pilot. Okay. I feel like we've had someone on the show that, was a pilot. Well, I don't know if they were a pilot. I think they were just into flying planes, like model planes. I'm thinking of Dantley Davis. I don't remember if he told me he was into planes or Uh, if he did fly, like, you know, recreationally. I don't remember which it was, but I would imagine that's probably pretty, pretty well within your grasp right now. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing to be up there and, you know, how you feel when you're actually in control of the plane how complex it is, but, you know, in, in some ways it's fairly simple mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, it just seems like extremely challenging, but very peaceful at the same time. It will probably make your commute easier. Oh, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going from Seattle to San Francisco, man. You want to talk about work-life balance. That's one thing that's off balance is like, you know, how can I make that commute less painful? Yeah. Um, yeah. How far is it? I mean, I'm assuming you're flying, but like, it's what, like a... Two-hour flight? Yeah, yeah, sometimes a little less. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I'm trying to make it a science to get in and out of the airport and to the office as quick as possible. So I can get my day started at, like, 10 a.m., starting from Seattle, which isn't too bad. Yeah. See, Airbnb needs to work on the air part. Like, they got the B&B part down. Yeah. They get the air part down, get you a, a private jet or something back and forth, make it happen. There you go. See, I, I like the way you're thinking, Maurice. <laughs> we actually have a transportation division as well. I, I gotta, I gotta hit them up. Okay. So, what is it like? I'm curious because Seattle is a pretty big tech city. I mean, Microsoft is there, Amazon is there, Nintendo is there, a bunch of other probably smaller companies and stuff. But you're working in Silicon Valley. Do you feel like that's a big shift for you in any sort of way? For me personally, no. I mean, we have an office. Airbnb has an office in Seattle as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's an office here. And so I work out of the Seattle office as well as the San Francisco office. So, you know, we're part of community here in Seattle. I think what's interesting, really interesting in terms of like the, the black d- design community here, a woman by the name of Rebecca Markham has just like recently just used LinkedIn to like, literally just knit together a community out of thin air over the last couple of years of black designers in Seattle. I just spoke at uh, one of the events not too long ago, but, you know, being a part of the design community just at large in in Seattle, it's great. Like you said, there's just a ton of 
tech companies here. There's a ton of agencies here as mm-hmm. well. It's a nice uh, creative climate. Talk to me more about that local, like Seattle design scene, black design scene, I guess, if we want to put a finer point on it. Like, what is it like for you at this stage in your career? You know, I like to be closer probably to the black design community or uh, design community in general. So pretty, fairly busy. But yeah, just being able to meet with young, early in career designers and folks that have been in the game for a while as well, is just super interesting. I mean, like iron sharpens iron and sometimes it's just representation, like this being in a room of people that look like you, yeah. especially when, you know, that's not often the case, is uh, cathartic in of itself. And if that all of those people are also within your function and are passionate about what you're passionate about as well, it's like, it's like paradise. Yeah. That's something that I found interesting when I started doing live shows with Revision Path is mm-hmm. that oftentimes just the fellowship aspect alone of being in the same room, like for attendees, for me too, really, just being in the same room with a bunch of black designers. I don't want to say that's enough. It feels, it feels like a disservice to say that's enough given sort of the dearth of spaces that are available in the design community, you know, that speak to us, that are for us, that cater to us, et cetera. But just being in the space, every time we do a live show, people are like, when's the next one? I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but like, they love that opportunity so much. And they're able to talk to people that look like them that are in the same field as them. Like, it's such a rarity when it does happen. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's so rare. I mean, basically, we couldn't stop talking about it. <laughs> you know, after we finished up with the event, people were just constantly remarking about how rare this is and like how good it feels. And yeah, I mean, it just like you said, it just speaks to the dearth of opportunities, places, times when we are together. Yeah. And just so it, it, we've got a long way to go in, in, in our industry. Now, you've been, you know, a design leader in this industry for a, a long time. You've seen designers come and go. You've seen trends come and go, et cetera. What is something that you think most designers don't worry about, but they should? I have an I, answer. I don't want to I don't want to see your answer, but <laughs> I, I want to listen to what you have to say. I would say the why, I think the more senior you get, the more experience you get, it gets better. But I've even seen it more senior designers not really understand like why they're making decisions and be able to articulate the rationale behind it. I think, mm-hmm. and, and it goes back to just like art versus design. Like do, we're not artists necessarily. We, sh- we should be artists, but our job isn't art in, as a designer, at least. You are solving problems. So like understanding how to articulate why you've made it a a decision down to, you know, every design decision, even some of the design decisions you're probably making intuitively or like instinctually. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see designers focus more on that. That was actually pretty close to my answer. Yeah, I was going to say writing, but for the very same reasons of like being able to articulate sort of why you made a certain design decision or why you decided to go a certain way. Like, I mean, look, I'm a designer that can sit out and vibe for hours over fonts and find what the right typeface is to get a vibe and all that. But like being able to articulate the why behind it is so important because otherwise people just think you're like some woo woo hippie designer, just pulling stuff out of nowhere. And it's like, where's what's the rationale behind it? Like what's the thought process (laughs) that goes into 
the decision because it feels like without that, then yeah, you are an artist because artists don't necessarily have to explain that. But as a designer, you're in service to the user, to the company, to the client, et cetera. So that rationale becomes, you know, paramount. Yeah. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't describe it better. I think, and then as you rise in seniority, you have this whole notion of accountability. Mm-hmm. So as you define that, you either create accountability because of those decisions or, you know, you're given accountability because of those decisions. And if you don't understand what you're being held accountable for, you know, you can't measure it. You can't tout it. You can't like when calibration performance reviews come around, you're sort of like, well, I did this, but why did you do it? What how did how did that track against the business impact? How You know, like you, how, can you make a I think there's a several ways to use that as ammunition. And then one of them is through performance reviews. Well, I also see like that as a area where writing and everything we're talking about comes in handy. Yeah. What advice would you give to like, let's say a, a mid-career designer? I'm even loath to use that term because the middle of a designer's career, it's often a very weird, nebulous period of time. You know what I mean? Because it's certain, I mean, certainly if you look at titles, you can be a junior or a senior or whatever, but like mid-career is that three years, five years, 10 years, how long is a designer's career, et cetera. But let's say a, a mid-career designer, say like five years or so in the game, they're listening to this interview, they're looking at your work, they're looking at your, your resume. What advice would you give them if they want to get to the level where you are? Sometimes I'm a little old school. I don't even know if this really still applies. I haven't thought about it as much. But uh, when I was coming up and, you know, it was, Again, my father's influence, he had the whole adage of, you know, you got to be twice as good. You know, Mm -hmm. he didn't really necessarily add the whole expect half as much thing. He's just, but he's, you know, definitely instilled that, you know, understand where the bar is and then just double it. So I'd say that I'd say craft and just excellence. If you can just be as scary, talented as you can be, I think that starts to speak for itself. And 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 also reflects your your passion. Whether you know whether that is uh, interaction or you know XD or communication design, visual design, graphic design, whatever it is, even like you know gathering insights, like just that notion of excellence and understanding where the bar is and always trying to push it is a gift. So one of the things that we have for this year, for 2020, is basically a more equitable future. I mean, 2020 is sort of this year that's been driven into pop culture as the future in many ways, whether it's the news show or just the notion of a repeating year of some sort where like, this is the future. How are you helping to use your design skills or even just kind of your station at where you're at in life? How are you helping to create a more equitable future? You know, one of the things we just started to do is to work with companies like the Interact Project. I'm sure you're familiar with the other Maurice Mm -hmm. Moe. And, you know, even beyond that, like how can you create more awareness of design as a viable path? Not only viable, but extremely lucrative in some cases path as well to underrepresented marginalized groups. I think that's key. I think for, for me, in terms of like contributing to a more equitable industry and like talent pool, it's just like getting folks in and then like understanding the, the, the barriers there. I mean, it's not just socioeconomic, but it's also like cultural. I think we talked about my background where my parents were very supportive of art as a 
just as a means to as a way of living. But that's definitely not always the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you, you see that all the time. So like overcoming those barriers. So awareness, I think access is another one. And then also like just tilling the soil, as it were, as a leader myself in propagating the understanding of representation, diversity, and, you know, having a diverse population feel like they belong as well, and how that puts jet fuel on creativity. You know, there's a lot, there's tons of research on it. I won't like go into, you know, go into all that, but it's tangible what happens when you get a bunch of different voices singing the same song. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, it's 2025. It's even further in the future. What is Tim Allen doing? What's he working on? Oh, man. 2025 in the future. Uh, I'm probably a host of some sort, either a, a super host in, an, in terms of an experience or my home or both. I'm working on that. Okay. Uh, oh, an yeah. Airbnb host. Okay. I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why my mind like went straight to game show when you said that, but okay. Okay. I could be a game show host. That could be interesting. Hey, well. nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel like that, that would be it. I, I feel like I would want in five years to be, to have like provided some pathway of access to increase our numbers as black designers in, in the field, definitely within Airbnb, uh, you know, but not only us racially, but numbers of other underrepresented populations as well. They're just being a beacon of inclusion and belonging. Yeah, I think if, if in five years, like somehow in, in the orbit of what it means to create a creative team or produce creative deliverables that are inclusive and that inspire people to want to be more inclusive and and host and make people feel like they belong. That's what I would want to do in five years. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? You can definitely check me out on Twitter, Tim Allen Design. Hit me up on Instagram as well. I'm just Timothy Allen there. LinkedIn is always a, a good route, too. I've got like a couple portfolios out there, but they're super old. <laughs> so take a look <laughs> at those if you want to. But, you know, just to kind of see some, you know, my path and some some old work. Any of the like airbrush that. shirts up there? No, I need to put some of those up there. Though. You should. I feel like that's making a comeback now. You know, design, like fashion design comes in like 20 year cycles. So true, true, true. And we're like, that, w- that would be ripe right now. Yeah. Hey, yeah. look. Think about it. Okay. (laughs) 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 All right. Tim Allen, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the show. Thank you for, one, giving us kind of a peek behind the curtain at Airbnb, what it's like to kind of be at your position, but also just talking about like your path, like your journey as a designer, how you've come up. And also really, you know, I think it's good to have that sort of introspection once you get to a, I don't know, I think once you get to like a certain level to, in your career to kind of see like, this is where I've been, this is where I'm going. It's always good, I feel like, to have those sorts of insights and reflective moments because not only does it help you out, help you grow as a person, but also it helps out others as well because you're able to kind of impart that knowledge on the next generation. And certainly it looks like with the work you're doing at Airbnb through your teams, as well as this work that you're talking about like with the black design community in Seattle, et cetera, that you're making that happen. So 
thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Maurice. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Big, big thanks to Tim Allen. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Tim and his work through the links in the show notes at provisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like a glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll even put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram and let us know, or even better, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe out there. Stay healthy. Stay clean. Wash your hands. And we'll see you next time.